First, there are no rules for revolution any more than there are rules for love or rules for happiness, but there are rules for radicals who do want to change their world. There are certain central concepts of action in human politics that operate regardless of the scene or the time. To know these is basic to a pragmatic attack on the system. 64,000 is the median number of words per book. Average person reads about 200 words per minute. Simple math will tell us that is one book in 320 minutes. To accomplish this in seven days, numbers say you would have to read for 45 minutes a day. forget to subscribe, hit that notification button, like, comment, and share. Enjoy. Welcome to the Book of the Week series. Every week as I read another amazing title, I share it with the world. My name is Igor S.F. Walker. Today we look at Rules for Radicals, a Pragmatic Primer for Realistic Radicals by Sol D. Alinsky. So how about you slow down and relax, reduce all that noise for just a bit. Make that choice and decide to listen. In this video we look at how the people are separated into four distinct groups and what they are. We look at the rules of the ethics of means. We look at what a revolutionary organizer should be and how it differs from a leader. We look at rules of power tactics and why people must first be reformed before any revolution might bring about any change. Stick around till the end. I will share with you some tools I haven't used that will help you tremendously in this game of life. Discover a way to find out what actually motivates you. What innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. I will share some tools to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, and relationship management. Today's generation is desperately trying to make some sense out of their lives and out of the world. Most of them are products of the middle class. They have rejected their materialistic backgrounds, the goal of a well-paid job, suburban home, automobile, country club membership, first-class travel, status security, and everything that meant success to their parents. They've had it. They watched it lead their parents to tranquilizers, alcohol, long-term endurance marriages or divorces, high blood pressure, ulcers, frustration, and the disillusionment of the good life. They have seen the almost unbelievable idiocy of our political leadership in the past. Political leaders ranging from the mayors to governors to White House were regarded with respect and almost reverence today they are viewed with content. This negativism now extends to all institutions, from the police and the courts to the system itself. We are living in a world of mass media which daily exposes society's innate hypocrisy, its contradictions, and the apparent failure of almost every facet of our social and political life. A way of life means a certain degree of order. 
where things have some relationship and can be pieced together into a system that at least provides some clues to what life is about. Men have always yearned for and sought direction by setting up religions, inventing political philosophies, creating scientific systems like Newton's, or formulating ideologies of various kinds. This is what is behind the common cliché, getting it all together. Despite the realization that all values and factors are relative, fluid, and change, and that it will be possible to get it all together only relatively. The elements will shift and move together, just like the changing pattern in a turning kaleidoscope. These rules for radicals make a difference between being a realistic radical and being a rhetorical one, who uses the tired old words and slogans like pig calls a cop a pig or racist or a motherfucker, and has so stereotyped himself that others react by saying, oh, he's one of those, and then they promptly turn off. Failure of many of our younger activists to understand the art of communication has been disastrous. As an organizer, one has to start from where the world is, as it is, not as where I would like for it to be. That we accept the world as it is does not in any sense weaken our desire to change it into which what we believe it should be. It is actually necessary to begin where the world is, if we're going to change it to what we think it should be. That means working in the system. Any revolutionary change must be preceded by a passive, affirmative, non-challenging attitude towards change among the mass of our people. They must feel so frustrated, so defeated, so lost, so futureless in the prevailing system that they are willing to let go of the past and then chance the future. This acceptance is the reformation essential to any revolution. A revolutionary organizer must shake up the prevailing patterns of their lives, agitate, create disenchantment and discontent with the current values to produce, if not a passion for change, then at least a passive, affirmative, non-challenging climate. A revolution without a prior reformation would actually collapse, or even worse, become a totalitarian tyranny. The reformation means that masses of our people have reached a point of disillusionment with past systems and values. They do not know what will work, but they do know that the prevailing system is self-defeating, frustrating, and hopeless. They will not act for change, but they will not strongly oppose those who do. The time is then ripe for revolution. There are only three things anyone can do, so we do one of three things. One, go find a wailing wall and feel sorry for yourself. Two, go psycho and start bombing, but this will only swing people to the right. Three, learn a lesson 
go home, organize, build power, and then at the next convention, you be the delegates. Remember, once you organize people around something as commonly agreed upon as pollution, then an organized people is on the move. Great dangers always accompany great opportunities. The possibility of destruction is always implicit in the act of creation. Thus, the greatest enemy of individual freedom is the individual himself. To lose your identity as a citizen of democracy is a but a step from losing your identity as a person. People react to this frustration by not acting at all. Now, this separation of the people from the routine daily function, functions of citizenship is heartbreak in a democracy. It is a grave situation when people resign their citizenship or when a resident of a great city, though he may desire to take a hand, lacks the means to actually participate. That citizen sinks further into apathy, anonymity, and depersonalization. The result is that he comes to depend on public authority and a state of civic sclerosis sets in. There can be no darker or more devastating tragedy than the death of a man's faith in himself and his power to direct his future. The significant changes in history have been made by revolutions. There are people who say that it is not revolution but evolution that brings about change, but evolution is simply the term used by non-participants to denote a particular sequence of revolutions as they synthesized it into specific major social change. Dogma is the enemy of human freedom. Dogma must be watched for and apprehended at every turn and twist of the revolutionary movement. The human spirit glows from that small inner light of doubt whether we are right. While those who believe with complete certainty that they possess the right are dark inside and darken the world outside with cruelty, pain, and injustice. Neil Bohr, the great atomic physicist, admirably stated the civilized position of the dogmatism. Every sentence I utter must be understood not as an affirmation, but as a question. Radicals must be resilient, adaptable to shifting political circumstance, and then sensitive enough to the process of action and reaction to avoid being trapped by their own tactics and forced to travel a road not of their choosing. In short, radicals must have a degree of control over the flow of events. Far better sense of direction and compass than the closed society organizer with his rigid political ideology. First, the free society organizer is loose, resilient, fluid, and on the move in a society which is itself in a state of constant change to the extent that he is free from the shackles of dogma.
and can respond to the relations of the wildly different situations our society presents. In the end, he has one conviction, a belief that if people have the power to act in the long run, they will, most of the time, reach the right decisions. The alternative to this would be rule by the elite, either a dictatorship or some sort of form of political aristocracy. The basic requirement for the understanding of the politics of change is to recognize the world as it is. We must work with it on its terms if we are to change it to the kind of world we would like for it to be. We must first see the world as it is, and not as we would like for it to be. The prime illusion we must rid of ourselves of is the conventional view in which things are seen separate from their inevitable counterparts. We know intellectually that everything is functionally interrelated, but in our operations we segment and isolate all values and issues. Everything about us must be seen as the indivisible partner of its converse, light and darkness, good and evil, life and death. Mankind divides itself into four groups. The have-nots, the have-a-little, the want-mores and the haves. The purpose of the haves is to keep what they have. Therefore, the haves want to maintain the status quo and the have-nots to change it. The haves develop their own morality to justify their means and their repression and all other means employed to maintain status quo. The haves usually establish laws and judges devoted to maintaining this status quo. Now, since any effective means of changing the status quo are usually illegal and or unethical in the eyes of the establishment. Have-nots from the beginning of time have been compelled to appeal to a, a law higher than man-made law. Then when the have-nots achieve success and become the haves, now they are in a position of trying to keep what they have and their morality shifts with their change of location in the power pattern. Just as the clash of interest within the have a little, want mores has bred so many of the great leaders. It has also spawned a particular breed, stalemated by the cross interests into inaction. These do-nothings profess commitment to social change for ideals of justice, equality, and opportunity, and then abstain from and then discourage all effective action for change. They're known by their brand, I agree with your ends, but not your means. They function as blankets whenever possible, smothering sparks of dissension that actually promise to flare up into the fire of action. These do-nothings 
appear publicly as good men and women, humanitarian, concerned with justice and dignity. In practice, they are not. They are the ones Edmund Burke referred to when he said acidly, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The history of prevailing status quos shows decay and decadence infecting the opulent materialism of the haves. The spiritual life of the haves is a ritualistic justification of their possessions. In Alice in Wonderland, Tiger Lily explains about the talking flowers to Alice. Tiger Lily points out that the flowers that actually talk grow out of the hard beds of ground. And in most gardens, Tiger Lily says, they make the beds too soft so that the flowers are always asleep. Change means movement. Movement means friction. Only in the frictionless vacuum of a non-existent abstract world can movement or change occur without that abrasive friction of conflict. The fact is that it is not man's better nature but his self-interest that demands that he be his brother's keeper. I believe that man is about to learn that the most practical life is the moral life and that the moral life is the only road to survival. Does the end justify the means? Is meaningless as it stands. The real and only question regarding the ethics of means and ends is and always has been, does this particular end justify this particular mean? There are rules pertaining to the ethics of means and ends. First, one's concern with the ethics of means and ends varies inversely with one's personal interest in the issue. One's concern with the ethics of means and ends varies inversely with one's distance from the scene of conflict. The second rule of ethics of means and ends is that the judgment of the ethics of means and ends is dependent upon the political position of those sitting in judgment. History is made up of moral judgments based on politics. The opposition's means used against us are always immoral and our means are always ethical and rooted in the highest of human values. The third rule of ethics of means and ends is that in war, the end justifies almost any means. The fourth rule of ethics of means and ends is that judgment must be made in the context of the time in which the action occurred and not from any other chronological vantage point. The fifth rule of ethics of means and ends 
is that concern with ethics increases with the number of means available and vice versa. The sixth rule of the ethics of means and ends is that the less important the end to be desired, the more one can afford to engage in ethical evaluation of means. The seventh rule of the ethics of means and ends is that, generally, success or failure is a mighty determinant of ethics. There can be no such thing as a successful trader, for if one succeeds, he becomes a founding father. The eighth rule of ethics of means and ends is that the morality of a mean depend upon whether the means is being employed at a time of imminent defeat or imminent victory. The ninth rule of the ethics of means and ends is that an effective means is automatically judged by the opposition as being unethical. The tenth rule of the ethics of means and ends is that you do what you can with what you have and then clothe it with moral garments. The eleventh rule of the ethics of means and ends is that goals must be phrased in general terms like liberty, equality, fraternity, of the common welfare, pursuit of happiness, or bread and peace. In short, ethics are determined by whether one is losing or winning. From the beginning of time, killing was always regarded as justifiable if committed in self-defense. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and we never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. We may appeal to one's self-interest to get me to the battlefront to fight, but once I am there, my prime self-interest becomes to stay alive. And then if we are victorious, my self-interest may and usually does dictate entirely unexpected goals rather than those I had before the war. <coughs> we repeatedly get caught in this conflict between our professed moral principles and the real reasons why we do things <coughs> to our self-interest. We are always able to mask those real reasons in words of beneficent goodness, freedom, justice, and so on. Such tears that appear in the fabric of this moral masquerade sometimes do embarrass us. Egotism is mainly a defensive reaction of feeling of personal inadequacy. Ego is a positive conviction and belief in one's ability with no need for egotistical behavior. Imagination is the inevitable partner of irreverence and curiosity. How can one be curious without being imaginative? Imagination is the mental synthesis of new ideas 
from elements experienced separately. The broader meaning starts with the notion of mental imaging of things suggested but not previously experienced and then expands to the idea of mental creation and poetic idealization. The organizer has a personal identity of his own that cannot be lost by absorption or acceptance of any kind of group discipline or organization. In order to be part of all, cannot be part and can be part of none. The organizer must be well organized himself or herself so he or she can be comfortable in a disorganized situation, rational in a sea of irrationalities. It is vital that he or she is able to accept and work with irrationalities for the purpose of change. The organizer should know and accept that the right reason is only introduced as a moral rationalization after the right end has been achieved although it may have been achieved for the wrong reason. Therefore, you should search for and use the wrong reasons to achieve the right goals. Use irrationality in his attempts to progress towards a rational world. The organizer must become sensitive to everything that is happening around him or her. He or she is always learning, and every incident teaches them something. They notice when a bus has only few empty seats, the crowd trying to get on will push and shove. If there are many empty seats, then the crowd will be courteous and considerate. In this constant examination of life and of him or herself, they find themselves more and for more and more of the organized personality. The organizer must be able to split himself into two parts. One part is the arena of action, where he polarizes the issue to 100 to nothing, and then helps to lead his forces into conflict while the other part knows that when the time comes for negotiation that it really is only a 10% difference and yet both parts have to live comfortably with each other. Only a well-organized person can split and yet stay together. But this is what the organizer must do. A free and open mind and political relativity the organizer in his way of life, with his curiosity, reverence, imagination, sense of humor, distrust of dogma, his self-organization, his understanding of the irrationality of much of the human behavior, becomes a flexible personality, not a rigid structure that breaks when something unexpected happens. Having his or her own identity, he or she has no need for the security of an ideology or a panacea. He or she knows that life is a quest for uncertainty, that the only certain fact of life is uncertainty, and he can live with it. He or she knows that all values are relative in a world of political relativity. Because of these qualities, 
he or she is unlikely to disintegrate into cynicism or disillusionment, for they do not depend on illusion. The organizer is constantly creating the new out of the old. He knows that all new ideas arise from conflict, that every time man has had a new idea, it has been a challenge to the sacred ideas of the past and the present, and inevitably a conflict has raged. This is the basic difference between a leader and an organizer. The leader goes on to build power to fulfill his desires to hold and wield the power for the purposes both social and personal, and he or she wants power for themselves. The organizer finds his goal in creation of power for others to use. Skillful and sensitive role-playing on the part of the organizer. In the beginning, the organizer is the general. He knows where, what, and how. But he never wears his four stars, never is addressed as, nor acts as a general. He's an organizer. His or her's acceptance as an organizer depends on the success in convincing the key people, and then many others, first, that he or she is on their side, and second, that he or she has ideas and knows how to fight to change things, that he or she is not one of these guys doing his or her thing, that he or she is a winner. They must also have faith in your courage to fight the oppressive establishment. Courage that they too will begin to get once they have the protective armor of a power organization, but don't necessarily have during the first lonely steps forward. Love and faith are not common companions. More commonly, power and fear consult with faith. Always remember the first rule of power tactics. Power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. The second rule is never go outside the experience of your people. The third rule is wherever possible, go outside of the experience of the enemy. The fourth rule is, make the enemy live up to their own book of rules. The fourth, fourth rule carries with it the fifth rule. Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. The sixth rule is, a good tactic is one that your people enjoy. If your people are not having a ball doing it, well, then there's something very wrong with the tactic. The seventh rule, a tactic that drags on too long, becomes a drag. The eighth rule, keep the pressure on with different tactics and actions and utilize all events of the period for your purpose. The ninth rule, the threat, is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. The tenth rule, the major premise, for tactics is the development of operations that will maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. The eleventh rule, if you push a negative hard and deep enough, it will break through into 
its counterside. The twelfth rule, the price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative. And the thirteenth rule, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Thirteen rules of power tactics. It should be remembered that you can threaten the enemy and get away with it. You can insult and annoy him. But the one thing that is unforgivable and that is certain to get him or her to react is to laugh at him or her. This causes an irrational rage. People must be reformed, so they cannot be deformed into dependency and driven to desperation and to dictatorship and the death of freedom. The silent majority now are hurt, bitter, suspicious, feeling rejected and at bay. It is a job first of bringing hope and doing whatever, whatever organizer must do with all people, all classes, peoples and times, communicate the means or tactics whereby the people can feel that they do have the power to do this and that, and so on, to the great extent the middle class of today feels more defeated and lost than do our poor. We have forgotten where we come from. We don't know where we are, and we fear where we may be going. Afraid, we turn from the glorious adventures of pursuit of happiness to a pursuit of illusory security. In an ordered, stratified, striped society, we must believe that it is the darkness before the dawn of a beautiful new world, and we will see it when we do believe it. And there you have it, rules for radicals. Please do help out. It is easy. Simply like this video so more people can enjoy it. It affects the algorithm. Somebody out there needs to see it. So please help out. Share it. Share it too and spread the word. Do leave a comment and share your thoughts. Talk to me. Talk to each other. Let's start a conversation. Subscribe to my channel and stay up to date. And the link to this book is in the description below. So buy it and read and never stop learning, especially learning about yourself and nature. So gift yourself by taking the free human needs test on my website. Find out what actually motivates you. What innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. Take the test. It's free. And if you feel you are ready to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management and relationship management even further, do become truly an organizer. Start your own revolution. Check out my Master of Life Awareness program. The links are in the description below. Thank you. Love and respect.